what is it about that experience I had that, that really moved me? And can I impart that um, to the audience that's in front of me now? Um, and in a lot of ways, I guess, it has done more offstage. It's done more in the practice room. So when I get on stage, I can just kind of let go and try to get in that state of flow. This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Gurus Hang Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Rex Richardson. Rex, well, he's all about the big picture. Rex uses his virtuoso-level classical technique to take his jazz playing to heights few can reach, and he brings the freedom of his spontaneous and expressive improvisational skills to the sometimes predictable world of classical trumpet playing. Rex is a committed educator, and he's never lost sight of the impact that music can make on the lives of others. So, pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin! Hi, and welcome to a new exciting episode of The Trumpet Guru's Hang, and I am joined by the one and only Rex Richardson. Rex, how are you, my friend? Great. Glad to be with you. Oh, man. The pleasure is all mine. We were uh, we were struggling, so uh, the behind-the-scenes action for you here on the, the podcast, uh, we had so much trouble just getting this this uh, link set up. I don't know what the hell is going on. This is like a technology curse day. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, you know, it, it's great to be able to uh, to talk with you because, you know, I've been a big fan of, of your playing for years. And, uh, you know, I actually a, a lot of the guys that I that I'm friends with, uh, act, you know, have, have studied with you over the years and have nothing but but uh, great things to say about you. Uh, so. Yeah, well, yeah, there are a couple there are a couple that, that said, yeah, well, he still owes me like 50 bucks. But <laughs> There's always one or two, right? Yeah. Yeah, there is. It was Qualic. It was Rob Qualic. It's all his fault. <laughs> Rob. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, man, you know, you you're uh, you're one of those those guys that I find really interesting. I mean, obviously, in the world of being a freelance or commercial, you know, a freelance player. I let's use that term, freelance player. Um, you're called upon to do so many different things. I mean, you play uh, you play with the uh, the symphony. So the you're with Richmond Symphony, correct? I'm not. I'm not a member of the symphony. I've just played as a soloist a couple times. Okay. Um, so and I've I've had the chance to sub with them a lot. The last eh, last few years before COVID, the travel was getting busy enough that I I was having bad luck every time they call. I pretty much wasn't able to do it. But before that, I would get to come in and play third or second trumpet pretty often. You know, and um, yeah. In fact, I do have my next solo appearance with them. Um, in April, doing a couple new concertos and a bunch of jazz arrangements, so that's be nice. fun. But nice, uh, yeah. So you, I mean, you do that. You've got obviously you get your your brass band of Battle Creek uh, shirt on, uh, doing your swag there. Um, <laughs> so I mean, you, you, you're doing the the classical repertoire, the solo repertoire. Uh, you're doing you know jazz. You're you know you you play you, you play it all, and you play it all at, a, at, a, at an extremely high level. And that's one of the things that really fascinates me is you know, how people can not only do that, do that at a high level, but be able to switch gears so quickly. So, um, you know, 
has your brain always been wired that way? Have you always been kind of, uh, you know, that this, this diverse kind of kind of person? Um, <clears throat> I don't know. First of all, I want to say I think you're giving me too much credit, really, in terms of what I'm able to do. I, I've, I find that over the years has been kind of an evolution, something that I see, I guess, wasn't all that common in my generation, but kids now, it's very common where they, you know, they're in school, and especially if they're in a city, they got not to play every kind of gig. So, you know, like we had a kid graduate, Hamid Barbaji, a couple, almost a couple years ago, who kind of epitomizes that idea now where he was a sub with the Richmond Symphony by the time he was a sophomore. He was touring with the blues band around the same time. He graduated like one of the best jazz improvisers in the studio and, and one of the very best classical players ever to come out of the studio. So um, <clears throat> for, for me, um, my early uh, playing experiences were along those lines. You know, I went to Northwestern, but I, I didn't get a music degree. I got a degree in anthropology which meant I was kind of free to explore. The downside is I wasn't getting any trumpet lessons after the age of 19, but the good side was I was out exploring. I started learning how to play jazz by going to jam sessions and getting my butt kicked by these better musicians and older musicians. And, um, and you know, while I was in Chicago, I got to try so many different styles of music from like klezmer bands to Latin bands, the big bands, of course, and started really digging into jazz improvisation and around that time, um, I got to play the Civic Orchestra of Chicago when I was a sophomore. But around that time, I realized that I might be better at something other than being an orchestral trumpet player. At that point, that was kind of what I, up to that point, that's, that was sort of what I envisioned. And so I started um, looking at, at digging more deeply into jazz and uh, starting to pursue the, the classical repertoire that I was more engaged with in, in high school because I was playing a lot of the more advanced rep back then and it kind of uh, in some ways left it behind to do orchestral stuff. But as the years went on, um, things kind of narrowed for me, you know, so I got to play with a group called Rhythm of Brass, which is a, a chamber brass group uh, that plays some different styles and I started touring with them in 95. Um, and I stopped playing lead trumpet um, I felt like I didn't really like what it did to my sound when I played. It doesn't, doesn't happen to everyone, but for me, it seemed to be a problem. And um, I ended up um, eventually really kind of having what I feel like is a fairly narrow focus overall in that I, I, I do the classical solo up, but really kind of specialize in the newer rep, a lot of which imp integrates some, some jazz elements or improvisation elements. And then on the jazz side, it's much more about, you know, um, kind of modernist stuff coming out of like a lot of musicians who are influenced by all the great stuff that came out of the late 50s and the 60s from Train and Joe Henderson and everyone else. And these days, you know, someone like Chris Potter and, and, and what those those people in, in those circles are doing. So, for example, if you have a Dixieland gig, I'm not I'm not necessarily the guy to call. For that you know i did have that experience in chicago that's when i learned i wasn't the guy to call because i didn't know the tunes <laughs> so um anyway sorry for the long answer but i i wanted to point out that i i feel like my experience has been in a lot of ways maybe not typical but more typical and in, in, with the younger generation where you just you get out there and you just try to play everything you can and you hopefully gather a lot of skill doing that and then eventually you sort of narrow down what you're doing i think if someone you know, 
because I don't even think of myself as a freelance musician anymore. Because when I was in Chicago, I was playing every kind of gig I could, a lot of studio work. Um, now, um, I get to do a studio thing here in Richmond, Virginia every now and then, but almost everything has been touring and it's all been in that classical solo vein or um, or a jazz, sort of modern jazz thing in in um, almost every every setting that I found myself. So um, there are other people I can think of who really kind of epitomize the, the freelance trumpet player, someone like Joey Tartell, for example, at Indiana, who sounds amazing on the classical stuff and the orchestral stuff and plays incredible lead. He's a really fine jazz improviser and is doing that kind of thing. He'll sub with all these different orchestras and everything else. And, and so in my case, I've kind of moved out of that zone. And um, when I'm home, I'm practicing or teaching and almost all my performances on the road doing something when I'm engaged as a soloist or a, for a jazz concert. Some sort. Yeah, cool. Well, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, when when I was younger and in school, uh, it seemed to be everything was uh, geared towards a specialization. You, know, you were either a classical player, you were a jazz player. And if you were in the jazz school, you were either, you know, working on your bebop or you're working on your lead chops. You know, if you're in the, in the, the classical school, you're either working on the, the solo rep uh, or, you know, you're, you're training to be, you know, in, an educator or something like that. So it was, it was real interesting how everything tended to be so, so compartmentalized. And now it seems like that, that, uh, you know, because it was, it was, there were few players who were out there that could just do it all. And, uh, it seems now that that's, that's kind of, uh, that as that generation of people who could do it all started teaching, then they started going, you know, Hey, really, you know, dude, you really, you need to be more well-rounded if you want to make a living playing, playing trumpet. So, uh, so for you, as, as like as an educator, um, you know, everybody kind of, you know, tends to come in with, with we tend to have tunnel vision a lot of times with stuff. It's like we have, and that's, that's okay, you know, to have a clarity of vision. But, you know, how do you impress on someone that, you know, it's like, oh, I just want to be, you know, I, I want to be a great league player. How do you impress on them the need to develop all these other tools in their toolbox that they want to be a successful uh, working musician? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question, I, and I think the first the the first thing I can draw upon is just really point out examples in in the music business. You know, the one thing that's changed beyond this, the fact that people are branching out is is the fact that composers are branched out. You don't have people necessarily trying to avoid jazz influence in the writing. You've got orchestral players who are willingly pulling in. Uh, jazz music or pop or rock or other vernacular forms of music, which I think is awesome. You know, it's like that's all it enriches everything. And so someone who decided they were going to be the uber orchestral player, and they get that gig and they're like, oh, man, I I didn't sign up for this, you know, then, well, maybe they get to keep their job, but they're still not able to do it in some ways, you know, and that's it's it's beyond that. And it's the same thing when you've seen the evolution in like classical trumpet players in, in a world where like, you know, I mean, obviously, Winton set a, a standard back in the early 80s for someone who was an incredible trumpet player um, and was deep into the classical rep as, as well as a, an um, extraordinary improviser. But you see, Sean Jones is the same way. He, he's not necessarily known as playing classical music, but he has, that's his foundation. He can show up on a brass quintet job, an orchestral job, and kill it, you know, um, in addition to his extraordinary skills as a jazz musician. So I think that's... Um, you know, as on the jazz side, you've seen more and more 
um, musicians uh, gaining that broader background because it just helps them as instrumentalists. And they know it helps them as musicians too. When people, young musicians start hearing how deep into classical music like, you know, Wayne Shorter was and, and, um, and Woody Shaw, and even going back to Duke, of course, I mean, maybe America's greatest composer, right? And he, he developed that skill set by taking in an extraordinary number of um, influences. And so I think the trend has been kind of simmering there for a long time. And now it's just kind of, um, it's just a little more explicit now in terms of musical circles and brass player and trumpet circles uh, specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's cool. I mean, it, it's the whole thing, you know, music is music and, uh, you know, playing trumpet is playing trumpet. And I think, you know, as I've gotten older, you know, I, I certainly was when I was younger, I was I was very much in that kind of tunnel vision sort of thing. And, uh, you know, as I've gotten older, I just I just love playing. You know, I, I may not be the guy. I mean, I definitely am not the guy for the symphonic job. I can tell you that right now. But uh, you know, if I have, and I have had an opportunity to play with with the local symphony a couple of times, and and it was fun. I really enjoyed it, and uh, yeah. because you know, I'm playing my trumpet, man. I'm you know, what's what what's there to hate about that? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, there are different things we can do that place different demands upon us too. You know what I mean? It's like the, um, it's funny. One of the silver linings of COVID is I finally, for the first time, like really like maybe 20 years was getting back to the kind of practice routine I needed to do. And so I've been shedding so heavily on the jazz side to develop the language that I want to have both, both as a player and as a composer, you know, and that's, that's a deep dive. Same thing with like, you know, some of the repertoire that I want to play as a soloist. I mean, it takes hundreds of hours for me to learn that stuff, but not all of it is that kind of thing, you know. Um, just like having good fundamentals and being a good musician can set you up, you know, to, to play in a lot of orchestral settings and play with a brass quintet to play, you know, in a, a jazz group that's playing standards, for, for example. And so you're right, a lot of it can be like, hey, you know, you've done the work on the instrument and you've got a reasonable exposure to these different genres and that sets you up to go out and, and play in a lot of different settings and really enjoy yourself and make some money too. So that, that doesn't hurt, you know. Yeah. And so they're, they're really different angles on the business that we can dig into and um, which again why is why I don't necessarily describe myself as a freelancer anymore because um, I, I, I'm at a point now that I think most of the time if someone's like, hey, they want a good trumpet player, I don't necessarily get that call. I'm going to get called more if it's like, well, we know what Rex does. We want that specific thing in terms of how he deals with repertoire or improvisation or something along those lines. But it starts for all of us with the first part. You want to get to the point that you're, you know, you're playing well enough that when someone needs a good player to play an orchestra, play lead or whatever, you're on the list. That gives you a chance, of course, to develop your skills and, and uh, develop a reputation for someone you know, who plays well and is reliable, hopefully, and is easy to work with. And then some people want to stay in that groove. Like there are some folks who are just these uber freelancers, like in New York City, you've had, I think of someone like Ray Mace, you know, who's like, God, one of the baddest trumpet players and most extraordinary artists on the trumpet ever, you know, but he's basically been a freelance trumpet player, you know, between ABQ, you know, American Brass Contest, not really a full-time job and play with the New York City Ballet and doing everything else, you know, and that's, that's a certain kind of zone that people can find a lot of fulfillment in, you know, and other people are going to 
eventually kind of narrowed down, which is what I feel like I've done. But I think, to your point, it's really important for young players, especially to, to, to get as much exposure to different genres and types of playing as possible. Because all of that ends up feeding your musicianship. It all sets you up to become what you're going to be down the road. You know, so every, everything I feel like I've played in some way helps me do what I'm trying to do now, even though it's, it's probably more now than it would have been in the past. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's kind of a cool way of looking at things, you know, because, uh, you know, music and life are kind of the same thing um, that, you know, we we kind of go through these points where we're, we're either like very, very broad and we don't know what we want or we're very, very you know, uber focused and we know specifically what we want. But it, it tends it, it doesn't tend to stay that way. It's kind of like, uh, you know, as you look at life, it kind of starts out out here and then it goes into here and then it expands out. And, and it, it's kind of more like an undulation than it is a, a specific uh, straight line kind of path. And, uh, you know, when when you when you start to get a better feeling and, and a lot of this comes with maturity it's the uh you know understanding well well this is uh these are my strong suits these are my passions uh and you know these so these are the things that that i'm going to focus most of my energy on because these are things that have uh, for lack of a better word the best payoff for you whether that's financially or just in your intrinsic uh enjoyment um and it doesn't mean that you can't do other things it just means that, that that's not where you put your your time and energy. So, you know, I, I, I think that's 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 super cool. And, and uh, you know, how that all ends up coming together. And speaking of which, uh, I saw that you had uh, you, were, you were doing a, a series of uh, of lectures about uh, jazz improvisation and uh, what jazz uh, uh improvisation can teach us about learning mastery and innovation and i found that to that topic to be i mean that's like right up my alley it's like how how do you take this one thing and how do you apply it to all things so um can you maybe talk about that a little bit i mean that's just, that's just a fascinating topic to me yeah it was um it ended up being uh one lecture i, I think it was relatively short actually maybe about an hour long but yeah i I was drawing upon, um, you know, my own experiences as a, as a musician and someone who had studied and performed improvisation. And then also uh, upon what I've learned from certain books. So, in fact, one of them is right here. This is one that I, I don't think is as well known, maybe as it should be. And you can see it's a big tone. But it's... Uh, you know, Thinking in Jazz, the Infinite Art of Improvisation by one of the professors I did get to take a course with at North, when he was at Northwestern, Paul Belenner, who's an ethnomusicologist. And it's an incredible deep dive into what it is musicians do. And I read it back in the 90s and I've started reading it again. They say, well, it'll be, I'll have a very different, different perspective on it now as someone who's, you know, I mean, nearly 30 years later uh, has been playing jazz for so long and you know, we'll have a different take on many things. I've also drawn upon the work of Anders Ericsson, who uh, wrote a book called, you know Anders, yeah, that book, Peak, oh, yeah. Secrets mm -hmm. of Science of Expertise. Mm -hmm. Amazing book, you know, and it was a real mind-blowing experience to, uh, to, to, you know, kind of be exposed to his insights. Um, another very well-known book is uh, The Talent Code Code by Talent Code uh, by Daniel Coyle, that I think a mm -hmm. lot of people are, are making use of. And... 
so I, I primar primarily drew upon uh, those books as a means of making sense of how jazz improvisation works and what it can show us about you know how how we deal with such ideas as as, as learning and achieving mastery and, and even creating something new outside of, of jazz improvisation so i think one thing all of us probably realized pretty early on is like hey we can be exposed to different art forms and draw parallels you know i i was pretty young when i i went to i can't remember it was ballet or modern dance show that i went in chicago and I realized, wow, I can really learn about rhythm by watching these shows. You know, this is a different t take on what rhythm is. And of course, you can learn about rhythm from a painting, you know, because rhythm is really about patterns and it shows up in all these different media, you know, and if we're, if we're kind of paying attention, we can draw lessons from that. And so some of the things I, I think one of the most important lessons I drew from, from, the books and from my own experiences was the importance of broad exposure to influences. So it ties in again with some of your, your earlier question. I think jazz has been really in, incredible as an art form in the sense of what it's willing and able to absorb, you know, um, and I think that's due to the nature of improvisation and the nature of the process, which is so much about it's about discipline and exploration. It's also about making mistakes and seeing where they lead you, right? And um, in a way that we don't necessarily think of classical study that way. We probably should, but we end up unfortunately getting the blinders on and be like, I'm, I'm trying to play this piece and not make any mistakes. And I'm like, I've talked to students about this. Like, do you, is that what you want people to hear when you go on stage, someone who didn't make any mistakes? They're like, uh, uh, no. I'm like, yeah, you, you don't want people thinking about that. It's like you really what is your your job is to go out and share this music with people. And yeah, of course, no one wants to have a, a huge number of mistakes that's going to you know draw from the uh, take away from the musical experience. But uh, it's also about not trying to play perfectly, of course. And I think jazz as an art form, the way it's evolved has been um, has has lent itself to the degree of innovation that it has because of that degree of openness. You know, uh, one of the little anecdotes from this book by Paul Bologna that I, I shared in the, in, in the lecture was even a little quote by Miles Davis when he, he was talking about Tony Williams and how inventive Tony was with rhythms and how receptive he was of things. And he said how, you know, if Tony were walking along and he, and he kind of tripped and almost fell over, he might think about that rhythm and play it later when, <laughs> when he got on the drums, you know. And also, um, you know, learning about what jazz musicians in New York were doing in the 40s and 50s, that some of them would, they go out to some part of the city where it was so noisy that they were their, their noise on the street wasn't going to bother them when they're practicing, but they're trying to work in the sounds of traffic into the rhythms and, and patterns, you know, and that's something that, not every art form is capable of doing and and i think it has there are a few things there one is just that spirit of improvisation being at the heart of the art form and the other is just that the way it evolved as, as a hybrid art form with so many influences you know it, it's um obviously jazz was born out of out of 
something terrible. And really, if the institution of slavery hadn't been in this country, um, who knows if jazz would have been born, if it would have developed the same way. Um, and it's, to me, that kind of gives it a, a sort of a weight. There's, there's sort of a depth to the art form. There's, there's a pathos at its root. There's a, a, a tragic element to it that is also, but it also is life affirming. You know what I mean? When you see something beautiful coming out on the other side and, and seeing how it's, it's one of the, the most eclectic art forms out there, you know, with the early influences being from West Africa, as well as European classical music and American marching band music and these brilliant musicians who, um, who invented it probably without even really thinking about what they were doing. They were just playing what they heard and what they knew. And this incredible art form developed. So it's, it's really an amazing story. And I think the, the lessons come from, I think that kind of analysis, like realizing, well, how did this music evolve? How does eclecticism help us to innovate? And um, how does openness um, allow us to innovate as well? Um, as we know, there, there's been, obviously in some circles, there have been some, uh, you know, there are snobs for any art form, I suppose, including jazz. There's some people who are the, the purists. If, it, if it's not a walking bass line or it's not bebop, then it's not good. But I think that's really a minority, you know, and, and especially with the, a lot of the musicians who are who have been making uh, a big wave in the art form in, in recent decades have been very very open to. I just saw Josh Redman perform uh, with his trio at the Purdue Jazz Festival, and I was I was playing there with the bands the next night, and it was amazing. It was just with his trio, and he uh, the kinds of genres they covered just in that one set were unbelievable, including like you know playing a theme from Beethoven you know, from the Seventh Symphony and just seeing uh, where it went. And so to me, that's kind of more the, the spirit of the, the root of jazz. Speaking of Miles Davis, who, who exemplifies that more than him, right? If you look at his career and he took a lot of criticism for that, but I think that was just his, his kind of a searching spirit that, that uh, really drove his whole life that I think is at the root of, the, of, of the, the jazz ethos, I guess you could say, you know. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's it's the like you're saying, the, you know, the spirit of jazz, you know, it, it's it, it's already a hybrid art form. And it was it's about taking influences. It's about bringing them together and adding this layer of um, emotional intensity, uh, whether it be the, the joy or the sorrow, because they're actually they're just flip sides of the same coin. You know, yeah. you, you, the, 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 the great joy is because of the deep sorrow that we have. Um, so, you know, as, as we look at jazz and the development of that as an art form, um, you know, you, you're, this is something I, I've, I've talked about, like I used to talk to, to my martial arts students about a lot was, you know, that there's, uh, the development of, of that art form was based on absorbing, you know, Bruce Lee said absorb what is useful. He wasn't the first person that said that. He just had a better PR agent. Um, <laughs> but it was, you know, it's like you, you find something that works, you take it, you add it to what you have, you strip away what doesn't work for you. And then, you know, then the next person does the same thing. And it's, and it should be a developmental art. It should never be the same. You're not looking to duplicate. You're looking to create. And I think that, that jazz is that, that same way where the, you know, as we have more resources, uh, we have different styles of music, we have different influences that we can draw from. 
then we add those to our personal life experiences, and then we can create something that is unique and you know worth you know listening to. Hopefully, um, so you know I, I think I think that when we we get to like well you know. Well, we can't bring that in because that's not, you know, we can't bring in hip hop because that's not music. We can't bring in classical because that's, you know, yeah. So I, I think that sometimes when we do that, when we, we become so, uh, when we fail to be inclusive, we fail to make the music what it can really be. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the talk about, you know, the phrase inclusive, in, inclusivity. I mean, that nothing, jazz is more inclusive than anything really i think in terms of you know in terms of the the people who are involved and love it around the entire globe of every conceivable background and the genres of music that it's proven itself open to you know you think of stories like you know when you i've watched some interviews like mike michael brecker is one of my biggest heroes you know and um i love randy too who's amazing and, and a, a super gentleman but I've always had just this, uh, a little bit of an obsession with Mike Brecker's playing. I've probably copied more from him than I have from trumpet players, maybe. But so I've watched interviews of him and he talks about who he was listening to when he was a kid, you know, and he was, it was all kinds of rock and pop music, you know, and you saw, you know, what came out of the Brecker brothers. And um, it, so th these are guys who were able to deal with genres and many different levels. And yet when they were playing jazz, they could also do that at the absolute highest level of the art form. And to me, that's the kind of, that's the best goal right now in terms of what the art form can be. You know, it's like you, you need that breadth and also you need that, the, the depth of achievement to, to really make it worthwhile. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, the, I, I've had this conversation recently with, with a few guests, a couple episodes ago, uh, Brad Good in particular was, was really, you know, talking about, you know how you know jazz is basically an oral tradition you know that that's how everything was was passed down and um you know that we've kind of in some it, i understand the reasoning you know we've institutionalized things we, we've tried to make it a a science uh of you know this is how you do it and then these are you know this is what you should play over a a minor two five and this is what you should do over you know so you know we we, we teach these these little mechanisms to help us to ideally become better players but sometimes it's people get so uh engrossed and engaged in that the theory of it as opposed to the actual execution which is supposed to be this expression this this unique expression and uh, you know, people play it safe. They want to play the right notes. They you know they want to do things. But like for me, I mean, my my favorite improvisers in terms of trumpet, uh, three my three favorite ones are are Miles, Woody, and Freddie. And all of them, and you listen to any of their recordings. I don't care whether it's a studio recording or live recording. You hear a lot of little chips here and there, and you 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 hear things that and you know because they're always pushing their limits a little bit. Yeah. You know, they're never playing it safe. And that to me is, you know, that's that's really what touches my heart. You know, it's it's great to hear somebody play a perfect line, but you know, if you cuff a note or two, but you've got some you got some stank on that, you know, that's like, yeah, that's what I want to hear. It's it's funny, man, it makes me think I've said this a few times when, you know, talking about, you know, missing a note or something, I was like, man. You guys ever, I was talking to some kid, I said, you ever, 
Super notice how it, I was missing Freddie and Miles in particular, actually, how both those guys could just miss a note. It would be the baddest thing you ever heard. It was just the, what would be in that miss would be so killing. I said, that's very instructive for us. You know what I mean? It's like, now they're not, they're not trying to screw up or something, but it's like, they're, they're doing what you're saying. It's like, they're, they're at the edge of the ability, their ability. And it's the kind of thing where, you know, really we want that same balance of performance in classical performance. Like probably, I've got so many, I got, dozens and dozens of trumpet heroes and that's it's expanding all the time you know because i keep discovering new players or younger players that are coming up but probably my favorite classical soloist of all time is hoken hardenberger you know who um has, has been kind of dominating the scene really kind of since since the 80s as, as far as the, the serious classical soloist but the thing i really love about hokan's playing is that he always goes for it i mean that guy misses sometimes he'll he'll just even just kind of wipe out on something, you know, it's not often <laughs> because he's got such incredible command of the music, but he's not playing it safe. And so every note has this sense of commitment. So as soon as he starts playing, you're like, whoa, man, this is a, you know, this is a kind of film, you know, it's a movie or the story, whatever, I'm, I'm being pulled in here. And I think that's what it requires is you, you have to, on the one hand, yeah, you're, you're building your technique, you're building your facility and you're learning to play correctly whatever but on the other hand you're you're also training yourself to to let go and and just tell the story with a a sense of reckless abandon or something close to that at least you know yeah, so yeah. that we find that right great balance between the okay there's great command here and there's also someone the, the beauty of watching someone operate at the edge of their abilities the beauty and excitement of that you know seeing someone who's a master like those guys with miles or Freddie or, or Woody or Hokan operate at the edge of what they can do. What can be more thrilling than that, right? It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and it's, uh, yeah, I'm a firm believer is one of my favorite quotes. How you do anything is how you do everything. And it's, it's just, you know, there's, there's a way. And, you know, in terms of like, you know, we're talking about with uh, uh, Anders Ericsson, you know, the, the concept of the, the dedicated practice and, you know, the, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, that's how you get good at anything. Um, now, however, there, there are always going to be, you know, the little specifics, you know, the nuances of it. But, you know, like when you talk about getting like, uh, you know, for, especially for athletes, you know, you talk about being like in 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 the zone, you know, Mihai Chisek Mihai, I can never pronounce his last name, uh, wrote a book called Flow. And it's about, the you know, the state of, you know, high performance where where things are just just happening but one of the keys to flow is you have to be at a stage just slightly beyond what you're capable of you can't be too far you know trying to be doing too much you know you're not you're not doing 200 percent uh but you just have to be right at that sweet spot where you're just yeah. going past what you normally are capable of doing totally. it's really just over the edge isn't it yeah that that's what that's what allows us to, you know, because it keeps us fully engaged, but not going into a freak out zone. You know what I mean? It's like right in that, that sweet spot, as you put it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's so hard because, you know, it's like we've societally, we, we, we've allowed ourselves to be beaten down uh, and have these preconceptions, you know, the perfection and, you know, you can't chip a note, you can't do this, you can't do that. And, you know, and, and not, it seems like, uh, we don't encourage people to take chances 
we're always cautioning them not to fail. You know, and by doing that, the way the brain works anyway, if you say don't fail, you're just basically setting them up to fail. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's true. It's funny, man. I think in musician circles, a lot of that, you could argue a lot of this coming in recent decades from the work of uh, rather lazy orchestral audition committees, you know? People they're like in the first round and, you know, maybe some of the people really care and others, they're just looking for someone who doesn't chip a note and they get passed on. And when that happens, lots of times the very best musician in the room might get thrown out in the first round. Someone that they would really love to have in their in their section who's gonna, yeah, play consistently, but more than that, um, who's gonna bring all this musicianship in, into the ensemble. They might get thrown out because they weren't 100% technically perfect. And someone who's training themselves for that, who ends up being a bit robotic in their playing, maybe even ends up um, passing on to the final rounds. And it's it's a really unfortunate process because I think that when you see someone who plays like that making it into the final round, then those lessons get passed down. Up there. It's like, oh, you got to play like this. You know, you keep it in the box, keep it safe. Nice, pretty sound, but, you know, don't do too much with it. <laughs> you know, um, make sure your time is, is correct rather than expressive. And on it goes, you know what I mean? And then, yeah. then we have that kind of a tradition evolving music instead of one that's more likely to foster creativity unfortunately yeah. yeah well and that's that is so that's so spot on i think and and it's the um to to our detriment uh it, it's that that striving for, for for perfection you know which is you know it's an illusion anyway that it's never going to be perfect uh you know but i think like one of the things that that um, especially when I think when I was younger and now I have, like I said, was saying like having more of a global perspective, you know, maybe my, my way of looking has changed. But I think a lot of people still have this thing about, well, classical music, the emphasis is on technical accuracy, you know, and then jazz, it's the creative, you know, you know, the improvising, the, the freedom, um, but not seeing how those two work together that, you know, if you have, if you have technical accuracy but you don't have any feel yeah it doesn't matter whether you're playing you know bebop or whether you're playing the brandenburg if you're just playing the notes on the page then it's really not music you know it's not an art and, and if you've got great ideas but you don't have a facility to be able to express those ideas then you're really not doing anything to push your art forward so it's it, it's a it's finding that balance so like for you i mean how i'm sure that you you've gone through those phases you already kind of talked about how you were doing that like the hard practice you know um how do you work with creating that that fine balance of you know taking care of the technique and making sure that you don't allow the technique to get in the way of your your intentions yeah that, that's such a great question and a lot of it comes down to there's the development of fundamentals, you know, that we all work on. And then there's learning how to practice performing, on the other hand, you know, because if all I'm doing in the practice room is trying to, you know, work up these, these licks or these passages, so that there's, I'm trying to get them perfectly executed at a certain tempo, 
and that's as far as it goes. And then I get on stage. Well, I might be just trying to do that instead of remembering, hey, this, you know, music is really about a sense of narrative. You know, more simply put, it's, you know, it, it, it's like listening to a story or, you know, the, the same things that characterize a great piece of music or a great improvised solo, are the same things that characterize even a great um, television episode. You know what I mean? Or novel. It doesn't matter on the scale. There's, you know, there's, there's some kind of conflict and development is introduced and, and, and then there's a, a resolution of it, you know, and that's the simplest terms, of course, you can analyze even those little sections down to uh, um, very fine constituent parts, I think. But they all Every, everything we experience as art, in particular in our Western tradition, is characterized by that kind of a structure. And so I have to remind myself that this, what I'm trying to really impart to an audience is that story. And the way I try to, to achieve that is I, I really draw upon the memories I've had of being in the concert hall and having an amazing experience like hearing some of my favorite artists, trumpet players or otherwise, you know, violinists, pianists, um, just ensembles and, and remembering like what it was that made me really feel like I was having an experience and I was really uplifted. And because um, I figure it's my job to do that for an audience member too, right? And so if I can project, if I'm on stage projecting, this is what I'm, hoping is, is, is the experience on the other side. And not every piece will necessarily allow you to do that. Sometimes you're, you're going to be less conscious about what you're doing than that. You know what I mean? But to me, there's always kind of an element to that of like, what is it about that experience I had that, that really moved me? And can I impart that um, to the audience that's in front of me now? Um, and in a lot of ways, I guess, it has done more offstage, it's done more in the practice room. So when I get on stage, I can just kind of let go and try to get in that state of flow. Um, but I guess if, if that's hopefully answering the question, that's that's the balance where it's like you, I do practice to play things uh, technically perfectly and, and technically as fast and as high and as loud or soft as, as I can do them. But that's for the practice room, you know, when I get on stage, just to be like, okay, you've done the work now, just let it go, you know, just put it out there. And, um, and I don't expect myself to play perfectly anymore. I did when I was younger and I was always angry because I never did. <laughs> now I know I'm going to miss something, but I also, you know, you run into this with kids a lot too, where they're probably less so now in the days of YouTube. But you know, when I was growing up, you know, we had all these commercially produced recordings and everything's edited, everything's, you know, polished. And um, I didn't know that my favorite trumpet players miss notes on occasion, you know, and uh, I'm going to stay now. I've heard every single one of my favorite trumpet players miss notes in performance. And it's like, well, they're still my favorite players, you know, that nothing to diminish my enjoyment of who they are as musicians. And I figure, you know, you know, who am I to have higher standards than that? It, it doesn't make any sense at all. So I don't expect, I, I practice for perfection in a, in a certain sense, but I don't expect that on stage. I just want to share the music. 
And then if I can do that successfully, I'm less in my own head. It's less about self-awareness or ego or other things that I might be worried about. And it's just like, hey, we're all just getting to enjoy this music together. Isn't that awesome? How What, what a privilege for me to be on stage sharing this music with people. And then that also helps me to feel more um, relaxed on stage. Uh, I have a better time and probably the audience has a better time as well because I'm having a good time. So um, anyway, that's how I think of the balance is, is sort of balancing those different considerations of technical expertise that I'm developing in the practice room and also uh, training myself to forget about that. As Bird said, you know, learn your horn and get it. And then basically forget about it and, and play, you know, um, to paraphrase. <laughs> but it's like, it's it's that same concept that I think we all need to draw upon in one way or another to have our best experiences on stage and to give our audiences the best experiences as well when they're listening to us. Yeah. Well, that's cool. And there, there, one of the things that you said that, that really kind of resonated with me was, you know, saying, thinking about uh, the feelings that you had uh, experiencing being in an audience and then trying to take those and to yeah, share that same feeling with someone else. Um, and I, I think that that's such a cool way of thinking about it because, uh, you know, we do get in our own heads way too much, you know, and, and that's, yeah, I think that that is ultimately the, the distinction between um, like average good and great is your ability it, it's not so much your your. It's not so much that you're not making mistakes. It's how you deal with the mistakes that you make, uh, because you know you look at that like if we use an athlete for example, you know you look at a you know an average quarterback, you know, and they they throw they throw an incompletion or they throw you know on a big play or they throw a pick. Um, you know, they're going to get in their head and they're going to start second guessing themselves, uh, you know, and they're going to become, they're going to start being afraid to throw the ball. Uh, you know, a good quarterback is going to, you know, deal with that a little bit better, but a great quarterback, they don't change your game plan. They, you know, you look at a Tom Brady, as much as I hate him, uh, you look at a Tom Brady, or you look at, you know, a, a, an Aaron Rodgers or somebody like that. And it's like, okay, look, you know, Hey, I blew that last play, but guess what? I'm going to, I'm going to eat you alive on the next 10. And it's just that, yeah. that go for it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Man, I, I saw an incredible example of that when I was in high school, when I went to see the National Symphony in DC, because I, I went to high school in the Northern Virginia area. And so often would, you know, whenever I could, you know, go see concerts in the city. And they were doing Mahler's Sixth Symphony. And so Steve Hendrickson was playing principal trumpet at the time. He was a great, he is a great, he's, he's still around, thankfully, but when he was playing the orchestra, he, his playing reminded me of Hearst the bit. It was just this very, very kind of burly, um, fill the room, just incredible chord of the sound, um, very heroic kind of approach to playing, you know. And so that there's that opening trumpet solo, the beep, so I can't sing the pitches because I don't have the range, but um, 
but it goes up to the high B on C trumpet, and it repeats, which is kind of a crazy thing. He had like this repeating exposition, like something that would have been from the 18th century. It's one of the weirder things about that amazing symphony. But the first time through, Steve, he cacked the hell out of that high B. It was like a Freddie or Miles cack, man. It was like, Pshurr! he didn't cack it because he was holding back. I put it that way. And I was like, whoa. And he was very calm. He showed nothing. And then the next one, I knew it was going to appear. It's like, oh, man, I would have been like crawling off stage by now. You know, um, and it said he played freaking stronger and absolutely nailed it. And to me, that exemplifies what you're talking about. He wasn't, he, he, he wasn't, you know, dealing in some kind of grief based on what had happened, you know, with that one note, um, which to me, I still think was an incredibly soulful miss the way he, 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 you know, he missed it the way we want to miss a note <laughs> because he was going for it, not because he's being careful. And then um, he rose up and, and killed it the second time because of this sense of fearlessness. And it, it, he was being fearless and he also wasn't willing to punish himself for what had happened, which I think is very important. It's not only bravado or, you know, it's also just realizing, man, you, you, you got to forgive yourself for what happens on stage. You know, it was Chris Gecker who told me this early on where I was at Aspen Music Festival. I think I was pretty young, maybe 17 or 18. And they had the festival orchestra where we get to play with the faculty sometimes. And I was, I was playing with Chris and I was really worried about this one moment because he had this, it was some contemporary piece with the trumpet solo and it was kind of bizarrely long and taxing. And he wanted me to step in and play one of the phrases and he just jump in. I was like, Oh my God, I got a song like Chris for this phrase. How am I going to do that? But I chipped a note when I did that. And I was so angry at myself. And Chris was like, hey man, you know, in the rehearsals, you were a little bit loose. You were always very focused and paying attention. And then um, in the concert, you got really angry at yourself because you chipped something. He says, you got to flip that. It's just like when you're in rehearsal, when you're practicing, do the deep dive, be very commanding, be very uh, demanding, be very, very focused. But when you're, man, when you're performing, just forgive yourself, just let yourself make mistakes and you'll find that you actually play better and have a better experience. And so uh, it took me a long time to actually be able to start implementing that, but that was probably the, you know, the, those two experiences were really important in helping me to realize those those principles. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great lesson there. Um, so this next question is gonna be kind of, metaphysical if you will okay. all right um you know when when people get in states like flow the zone whatever you want to whatever you want to call it um sometimes it, it's it's almost like uh, people will say it's like almost an out-of-body experience where where things ideas actions come up that they have no idea where they came from it's just like Oh, okay. There it is, and you know you you've kind of disengaged the conscious mind, and you're tapping into uh, a greater, you know, whether you know the collective unconscious or you know the universal intelligence, whatever you want to call it. But you're tapping into something that that uh, is a little bit beyond you. Um, and have you have you had that experience, or do you feel is that kind of like where you feel almost disconnected uh, from your your regimen itself when you're in that state, when you're really, when you're really expressing yourself as an improv improviser. Yeah. I, I don't feel like it's necessarily 
I wouldn't necessarily attribute it to anything sort of metaphysical, but um, it's it's more about I think realizing how heavy stuff can get with us just in, in the normal physical natural realm. I feel like we underestimate that sometimes. You know how profound our experiences our experiences can be with um, um, really as experienced entirely in our, in our own body and, and, and cranium, you know what I mean? It's like, a, I think that comes from our, our general experiences of daily life are often so mundane that when something elevates that, we feel like it, maybe it's gotta be from outside or not. So, and I, I'm totally open to the possibility of being wrong about that myself, but um, all of us probably just, we respond to the way, to, responded to the way we uh, perceive it, you know? And in my case, yeah, I feel like there are times when I'm, I, I'm just, I've just kind of lost myself in the process. And I think that's when I always play my best, you know, because there's, there's nothing else there driving it except sort of that, that there's that uh, pure musical impulse, you know, where the only point of focus is, is the music itself and what's happening with the other musicians that are, I'm playing with. And you kind of, you kind of lose yourself. You almost forget you're there, or maybe you feel like you're just kind of sitting back and watching it happen and yeah it's a beautiful experience it doesn't happen every single concert you know i wish it did but uh it's i think it tends to be the better the setting i'm playing in in terms of the musicians i'm playing with and maybe the uh the engagement of the audience and uh, the better my state of mind those three factors usually would determine how likely it is i'm, I'm going to get to that point that it's just like Nothing's really there but the music. You know, it's beautiful. Right? It's it's amazing what happens. And I think any any musician who's had a certain degree of experience um, has has gone through that. It's just something we uh, probably most of us wish we could trigger all the time. <laughs> but I think it's a rare state. You know, we we tend to operate in the zone where we're you know we're we're in control, but we're, there's a certain amount of looseness there, um, and it's fine. But every now and then it's just like whoa, things just kind of pop where you just completely let go and yet you have total command at the same time it's an incredible um sort of self-contradictory um situation we find ourselves in that is probably the the, the epitome of a creative expression really yeah it's amazing yeah. well it's, it's finding that you know the term i used earlier balance point where you have you've developed the the rote skills the the technical proficiencies the habitual actions uh that so that you don't require conscious thought to do something uh and when you can get you know because your conscious mind only can process like 50 bits of information uh a second uh as opposed to what your subconscious mind can can deal with so when you when you get that out of the way then all of the the creativity all of that stuff can be processed so much faster but it requires this to be able to be to work without having to think like well, how do I play that? How do I do that? You just right. let it happen. Totally, absolutely. So yeah, that that's that super cool stuff. It's stuff I can talk about forever. Um, but I do want to ask you about um, some of the videos that you were doing uh, during the the pandemic. Uh, some of those practice videos. There was some phenomenal stuff in there, um, and. You know, kind of what what motivated you to to, to start documenting that 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 uh, some of the the madness that you were doing for your daily routines? Oh well, 
more than anything, it was, you know how it is, how we, you know, all of us, we, we benefit ourselves from the ability to, to share with audiences and with other musicians and with students, you know, young people who are, who are maybe looking to us to learn some things. And um, all of a sudden that was kind of gone, you know, and it, it was funny for me, maybe one reason why that was really present is because of what I almost got to do was I, I was supposed to play uh, as a soloist with the Jazz Men of America at the uh, Music for All Fe National Festival in Indianapolis. And we had a chance to rehearse and these kids were just uh, extraordinary. I mean, it's literally probably the finest high school jazz band I've ever heard anywhere in the world. Extraordinary. Um, and just great attitude. They're having a blast and they're, they're musically disciplined, but they were personally loose and happy, you know, it was fantastic. And so then they sent us all home before we could perform. And even before then, the festival was sort of slowly disintegrating with everything getting canceled and one by one, finally our concert was. But but I realized part of that engagement with those kids realized, made, made me realize, wow, this is something very special for me. This is something I really benefit from being able to share with with people um, like these kids who are, who are exceptional because of the joy they're experiencing they're sharing as well as the, the work they're doing as musicians you know and so right off the bat i thought well maybe if i i start uh making videos uh it can be a win-win maybe some people will benefit from this and it'll be fun for me and i'll still feel like i'm, I'm connecting with people and so it was really um a lot of it was sort of a, trying to achieve some self-preservation once i realized <laughs> I wasn't going to be able to do any touring for a while. And it started pretty early on because I was seeing, I was inspired by some of my friends who were doing the 100 days of practice videos, you know, people like Mary Bowden, who's a, a, a great young soloist and plays a Sarah Frass, runs Sarah Frass, and Tom Hooten of LA Philharmonic, some of these folks are really into practicing. And so I thought, well, maybe I should do some of that too. And it ended up being um, a, a nice experience for me. And thankfully, um, a lot of people responded well and seemed to, you know, draw some benefit from it. So I was, I was really uh, gratified to see that. Yeah, no, that that's a that's a huge resource, you know. And uh, I highly recommend uh, anybody who is looking for some some new takes on on ways to approach a practice to to check out the check out that series. And uh, yeah, I got the book coming out soon. Oh, uh, 100 days of practice, 100 days of trumpet practice. So on Editions BIM, the, the Swiss publisher, um, they've been dealing with uh, between other deadlines and I think a bunch of folks in the, in the it's a family business, y'all got COVID, they were all kind of laid up, you know, a bit here and there. And, and then, uh, you know, other complications have set them back a little bit time-wise, but, but we're getting back on schedule and hopefully in the next couple of months, that book will be released in English and thereafter in, in some other languages. So, um, and that's that's a, an attempt for me to to set up this idea of like, you know, I realized that 100 days, okay, it was a hashtag, 100's a nice round number we use kind of by convenience, but it was also about the productive amount of time of a, of a semester, at least in the US. You know, between the time you show up, you just take your first lesson and you're kind of a, taking your exams, that's typically about 100 days. So I said, well, that, 
that's kind of convenient because that's a that's a great time unit for us to, to think of our working for people who are in school, you know. So it's kind of outlining um, an approach to routine that is aimed at helping people figure out how uh, to best structure their own practice. And that came out of those videos because that's when the, the publisher reached out to me and said, man, what if you did a book that was based on these ideas? And I love that idea. So we're, we're it's hopefully finally going to come to fruition soon. Awesome. Well, I'll be looking forward to uh, getting a copy of that one myself. So cool, cool. you know, the help I can get. Um, so, uh, well, we do have a few uh, segments that we need to get to. These are our, our, our standard segments that we do every episode. And uh, the first one is brought to us uh, by Michael Barkley of Barkley Microphones. It's called Sound Off. And uh, this is about uh, your approach to developing sound. For trumpet and especially for someone who's uh doing work as a soloist and uh both in the classical and the jazz world um you know there you have to have you have your sound but you also have to have you know you sound unique to the performance so uh, what are some of the concepts that you use for developing sound and, and how do you teach those concepts to to your students yeah awesome question i like the way you phrase it too the idea you know we want to have our own sound but our sound our sound also kind of belongs to a genre whatever it is that we're playing, you know? So the way I think about it, to, to me, you know, the number of facets that can go into the quality of a sound, you know, the kind of energy with which we're engaging, you know, the, uh, the air that we're sending into the instrument. And I think people obviously often think they want to shove the air through the instrument. It doesn't work that way as we eventually learn. And so finding that balance between, you know, because mostly I think of just releasing the air no matter what it is I'm playing. And when these muscles kind of engage more, they're, they're just doing it on their own. I, I don't ever really think about pushing. My concept is just like you just release the air and um, and it meets that air column that's defined by the the shape of the trumpet. The sine waves go through and back and, and we have a buzz, you know. And I don't understand it on the physics level at all because I don't have those kind of uh, math chops. <laughs> but I understand the basic concepts. And so for me, what's what's most important though, among all the different elements that create a good sound is resonance. And that is really trying to find the center resonant point of every note. Because we can play on the high side, we can play on the low side. And if we go right to the center, we're most likely to get the uh, that perfect balance between brilliance and richness, you know. And some players get so good at this, they can manipulate, they can deliberately ma manipulate that sound to either side. Like I have a, a friend named Brian Strawley who deliberately plays just above the center and it gives him this quality of brilliance to his sound. If you went too higher, too much higher, it would sound pinched. He's not doing that. It's like just in the right plot spot. And Joe Bergstaller, for example, kind of does the opposite. He sits just below the center and it gives a very a really warm vocal quality to the sound. If you went a little further, it would get kind of dull, and of course it would sound flat. But um, but everything's kind of playing around that that center. So what I focus on uh, primarily for students is is trying to develop that using James Stapp type routine, bending notes, and try to getting trying to develop a really strong concept of the sound by listening to great players and by recording themselves and making direct comparisons. I'm like, look, man, it's going to be humiliating if you're, you know, 
you're listening to Chris Martin or Freddie Hubbard and you're, and you know, you're recording yourself and comparing, but that's how we learn. You know, you, that, that's what you're aspire, aspiring to in terms of the quality of your sound. And then when it comes to switching genre, what I focus on is the, um, I want to change the sound really with just the front of the note. It's really all about the articulation, I think, because I want the same core resonance and sound production regardless of genre. But if I'm playing uh, jazz or classical or even subgenres with a niche, you know, if I'm if I'm playing something contemporary, I'm not gonna. I might play with a much kind of more aggressive articulation than if I'm playing Haydn or Hummel, for example. You know, so I try to get a nice uh, palette of approaches with with um, articulation and apply them to uh, the sound without changing the the core resonance so much. Um, and that that seems to be for me the best approach. Yeah, that's cool. I never never really thought about that. So that's a, that's a, a slightly different way of thinking about about that sound production. You know, think about the articulation. That's that's real cool. Because some of it, yeah. Because you know, and you know, one of the weird things that it comes to when people are doing you know quote unquote crossover playing whatever. It's like we learn well. We're going to play classical music with you know this very clean clear sound and then we're jazz players seem to be doing something else and unfortunately sometimes some classical players think well this they're just playing loosely or sloppy or something i'm like no the the sound quality you have to think it more of as an additive thing like the one of the really strong elements of of sound quality in a trumpet really all instruments that are used in jazz is there's a big influence of course from west africa and all those traditional instruments, they, they tend to have something else attached that just kind of buzzes or hisses. You know, that's part of the aesthetic of the sound. And so when you hear like, you hear Lee Morgan play with that crackle in the sound, to me, that's that's what that is. It's something that's added. It's, it's a part of the aesthetic. It's not from not being schooled or something, you know, that was kind of the old school way of uh, classical pedagogy thinking they looked at used used to look at jazz musicians that way i don't think that's as common but i think still sometimes young musicians don't have a real strong concept of what to do They're like what do i just kind of not tongue when i play jazz it's like no 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 you just need to you know develop a strong concept of of not only how those great players sound but why getting a sense of what's happening what's the story behind that approach and when they have that then it then it's easier for them to look at it as something they work towards adding those elements to the sound as a, and playing jazz um, rather than something that feels kind of confusing and um, and something that that uh, creates uncertainty for them, if that makes sense. Yeah, gotcha. All right. All right, fantastic. Uh, next segment is uh, brought to us by Venture Mouthpieces, Venture, where technology, design, and craftsmanship intersect. This is called Geared Up, and this is... Ah, about our wonderful friend, Trumpet Gear. Uh, and uh, and if you're interested in Venture Mouthpieces, use the code uh, TrumpetGurus21 to get 10% off your order. But, uh, you know, this is, again, uh, it's about gear, but, you know, a slightly different take on gear, not, not so much, you know, what do you play, but why do you play it? What are the things that you're looking for your gear uh, to provide you uh, and to help you to be the best musician you can be? Yeah, uh, well, for me, it's probably in, in some way what everyone's looking for. You're looking for comfort and and sound production. And in a lot of ways, it 
most of it comes down to comfort because we're not always making the same kind of sound, but we're looking for equipment that allows us to make the sounds we're, we're looking for in any particular setting. So I found, for me, the best balance, like I've, I've, uh, I've been a Yamaha performing artist for a long time now, like since 1995. So I've, I've been playing only the horns for quite some time, but I, I just use a large Borzino. It's not even one of the um, signature or custom horns because that seemed to be, when I played for a number of the Yamaha designers that I trust, they thought, and I agree, that seemed to be what I sounded most comfortable on. I seemed to, um, seemed comfortable in my own sound on that instrument. And I use, um, I have a pick, picket brass, um, signature mouthpiece, they call it the Rex Omni, I guess, because it can be used in different uh, uh, genres and settings. And this is actually the Rex Omni 2. It's a little bit different design than the first one. And it's pretty close to, a, it's very close, in fact, to just a Bach 1.5C. So I play everything on B flat, C, E flat, and D on, on that mouthpiece. And um, it just seems comfortable it seems to give me what I'm looking for that nice balance between um, core resonance and enough brilliance in the sound so that it, it, it's characteristic of what we're looking for uh, with with trumpet playing and it um, it works me to find that balance between flexibility and accuracy too so I don't feel like I'm I'm restricted and I also don't feel like I'm just lunging for notes and missing left and right because I played you know bigger mouthpieces right it felt like that you know, lots of flexibility, but no accuracy, and also smaller mouthpieces where I felt accurate, but I also felt kind of constrained. So this all just seems, is all about kind of striking the perfect balance for me. Yeah. No, that's cool. That's cool. I really like the, the statement about, you know, finding that balance between the accuracy and the and the flexibility, you know, because I think sometimes, you know, we get, whether it be with the, the mouthpiece or, or with the, the horn, like where, where the slots are just like so tight, and so locked in that you you don't have any any wiggle room. And I I had like an old uh, had an old Colecchio, uh one of the the ultras, um, and beautiful sounding horn, great jazz horn. But the slots were so loose that that playing lead on it was just it was horrific. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, it's uh it's definitely a thing. I mean, finding that balance for what it is in particular where we're trying to do and even really mine is probably if, if it's one way or the other a little more on the looseness side so I have to practice my accuracy above the staff more than I do say flexibility but I've been comfortable with that <clears throat> with that balance <clears throat> if it was on the other side maybe I might have to you know reverse what I'm practicing get a little more flexibility flexibility going but the key for me really above all is that I feel like even even more than maybe the balance of those two elements is that I can make the sound I want to make in, in all registers. Um, I've found some mouthpieces, especially smaller mouthpieces, where I just I just can't do that. It feels tight, and um, and and that's something that would be uncomfortable, no matter the accuracy and the, and the flexibility. If you feel like what's coming out of the horn is not the tone color you want, you know. So that's works for me for for now, you know. Yeah, well, that's all that matters. All right, final segment. This is brought to us by our good friends at Robinson's Remedies, uh, rapid relief for your sore and tired chops. This is the Robinson's Remedy Rapid Fire Round. This is a series of questions that bounce all over the place, some about music, some about not music. <laughs> and uh, okay. I just need your quickest response to this series of questions. Are you ready, Rex? I hope so, yeah. 
All right, let's knock this thing out. All right, first question. Who's the biggest influence in your life that is not a trumpet player? Uh, probably uh, Jan Gatani, who was a, a beautiful mezzo-soprano singer who used to teach at Eastman. Incredible a specialist in, in modern music. I, I wanted to explain because I figure most people probably don't know her name, but love her sound. All right. Uh, what's your favorite book? Wow. Uh, usually it's whatever I'm reading at the time, uh, which right now is uh, Atomic Habits. James Clear. By, by James Clear. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just getting into that for the second time now. Yeah. yeah just finished that up uh, last month. Awesome. Uh, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? Uh, probably, what was that thing? It was very popular on Netflix. Bird Box? Is that what that? Oh, yeah. That one that? Uh, Sandra Bullock. I never watched yeah. it. Yeah. No. No I, desire. I was totally blown away that there was any kind of buzz about it. It was literally, it was, anyway, for me, it was like probably the worst thing I've, in memory that I've seen. All right. Uh, <laughs> if you were not a trumpet player, what would you want to be? I'd probably be uh, um, in, in the wine business either winemaking or importing or selling or production in some in some way. Okay, yeah, I, I could see it. I'd be in the wine business too, but it'd be the consuming side. <laughs> okay, then we'd have a good partnership. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, what's your favorite drink? Uh, probably, it's tough because, I, I, you know, I, I love beer, I, I, I like whiskeys. Um, um, but I'm mostly a wine drinker, as you might have guessed, and and probably of all the grapes, my favorite, if I'm just going to have a drink, is uh, Primitivo, Ooh, which yeah. is basically, you know, as you probably know, Zinfandel, but from uh, the Puglia region of Italy, mm -hmm. and it's just a special quality, and, and uh, I'll be having a glass of that tonight, as a matter of fact. So. Oh, man, I haven't had a Primitivo for about a year and a half, so uh, maybe it's time to get another bottle. Yeah, they're beautiful, right? Really nice. Oh, absolutely. All right, um, speaking of all that wine, uh, you're going to have a dinner party. And you can invite any three living people. Any three people in the world can come to this party with you. Who would you want to have there? Okay. Wow. Uh, living people. It'd probably be um, Hoken Hardenberger, I think. And uh, if Freddie Mercury around, it'd probably be Freddie Mercury, but he's not alive anymore. Oh, this is a tough one, man. Um, Probably Joe Rogan, actually. <laughs> That's a brain I'd like to pick. And um, oh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm spacing on it. Maybe, um, I don't know, maybe. Maybe Obama, someone like that, you know? All right, cool. Someone I've always wanted to kind of have a beer with if I could, but. Yeah. All right. Um, you got three additional uh, chairs at your dinner table, and you can invite now any three people from history, any three people that are no longer with us. Ah, okay. Uh, then I would say, actually, I, know I have a stronger answer for the first question. It would probably be Beck Hansen, Beck, the, the pop star, who would probably be my, my third, actually. Uh, okay, I definitely put Freddie Mercury in there, and then I'd put I think um, uh, Miles Davis, 
although he might be a difficult guest, I suppose. And um, <laughs> what did I say? I got Miles, Freddie Mercury, and let's say uh, Stravinsky. Igor okay. Stravinsky. All right. There you go. Uh, lacquer, plated, or raw? Oh, great. Uh, to me, it depends on the, on the, on the horn. Um, I like, uh, I've had a, a raw brass flugelhorn. I thought that really worked well. Uh, I took the lacquer off my Mirashura trumpet when I used to use it for everything. It didn't sound great in classical after that. Uh, currently, I'm using a sil silver plating for my B flat and C and, and piccolo. So it gets a mixture of all in different settings, really. There you go. All right. What's your favorite quote? Uh, my favorite quote. Uh, man, I'm trying to blank on that. <laughs> can I pass on this one? <laughs> <laughs> you can call in a lifeline if you need. All right. Yeah. Something. Well, something comes to mind. I'll maybe right. move on the next question. All right. Yeah. All right. What's your greatest fear? Um, I, I have sort of a phobia of, of heights, actually. It's sort of the only thing generally that I, I can think of that I'm, uh, that I have an irrational fear of. Yeah. And never really understood where that came from. Yeah. All right. Nothing else. I don't mind spiders, snakes, any other things that typically scare people. Okay. Heights, man. Yeah. Um, you could be granted one superpower. What would it be? Oh. Probably super strength. Let's go old school with it. Are you talking in the arms or are you talking on the chops? All of it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I could I could lift cars and I could also play, you know, quadruple high C's probably. I don't I don't know. How there it you work. Go. <laughs> Whatever. Um, all right. One aspect of trumpet playing do you think is the most overrated? Well, of course it's a high register. For sure, that I would think, yeah. All right. Uh, what aspect do you think is the most underrated? I, I think the really is kind of be the opposite. I mean, I think there's something about lyrical low playing that um, can be so beautiful that I, I think a lot of people don't don't appreciate. It. I think a lot of students find they they become uncomfortable in the low register because of focus on the other registers. And maybe that's one of the reasons why, you know. As, as far as something to focus on, I think what's underrated or underworked on is, uh, you know, delicate attacks on the trumpet. That's the kind of thing a lot of people miss, I think, until it, it uh, catches up with them on stage. So that's something I work on every day myself. Well, there you go. Be prepared. All right. Uh, you can go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music. What would it be? Um. I would say always operate uh, from the point of fearlessness and humility at the same time under, in, in every single situation. Because I've tried to do that, but I've failed a lot over the years in retrospect. Okay. And while you're back there, you're going to give your younger self one piece of advice about life. Uh, I would say, think 
See if you can project what your future self is going to think about your current actions. You know, get out of the myopia, get out of what's right in front of you and think more long-term about, about your choices. All right, awesome. Final question for you, Rex Richardson. What do you want your legacy to be? As a musician or as a person? or a... What do you want your legacy to be? <laughs> okay. Well, I would like to think that people will look back at me as someone who helped, helped to lift people up with the music making side and help to um, offer good mentorship on the, on the teaching side. I hope people will look back um, with positive feelings about that. I find that people are amazingly grateful, generally, it, it, often like certainly more than I deserve. And I'm, I'm often kind of just impressed by that. People have this impulse to, to, to show appreciation and gratitude. And I just, I, I want to be worthy of that. I want people to, to really be able to, to see me as someone who, who was a positive influence on people's lives, both as a musician and a, and a teacher. Mm. Okay. Well, it's an awesome legacy. And, and like all legacies, you know, we're building it day by day. And, and I, I know that you've been, been doing some tremendous work and, uh, Certainly applaud you for all that, that you're doing and all that you're going to continue to do because uh, you've got that book coming out. So yeah, make sure you you keep everybody posted on that because uh, I know people are going to be chomping at the bit to get a hold of that one. I will. Yeah, I just posted an update recently, but um, I'm going to have a talk with uh, the publisher tomorrow. We'll get some more details. Ah, I just remember my quote, actually. It ties in with the advice I would have given myself as a musician. Someone, a friend of mine, years ago, said always said that the uh, the perfect musician has to be both humble and fearless. And I've, I've found that's incredible advice, you know, to someone who's, who shows humility in front of their, um, their fellow musicians, to the audience, to uh, their, their teachers, to the music itself, but also they're not afraid to engage with any of it and to, um, to, to put themselves out there and take risks. Yeah. And so that that's probably my, that's been a, a quote I've tried to live up to as, as a musician, for sure. All right. Well, very cool. All right. Well, if you want to uh, keep in touch with Rex, you can always find him on social media and, uh, you know, to also his website. Uh, so make sure you, you keep tabs on what the, this young man is doing. He's got many, many uh, great uh, things for you. So Not check so him out. Though. Yeah, well, man, you're younger than me. You're younger than me, so. I don't know. <laughs> uh, you're younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Born in 61, my friend. Wow, okay. You seem young, man. No, I was born in 69, so in fact, I'll turn uh, 53 on Sunday. Yeah, man, we're just so, getting better. We're, we're like a fine wine, man, you know? I hope so, man. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Try well, not to turn into vinegar, you know? You got that right. And we're going to have to definitely stay in touch with each other and share some book suggestions because yeah. I think we, we like to read the same sort of stuff. So, Yeah, I want to see that Mindfulness Secrets book you, you, you got there. That, that'd be a nice one. To well, I'll, I'll have to. Uh, I, I'm out of them right now. They're available on Amazon, by the way. If, you're, if you want to buy them, they're on Amazon. I'll, I'll send you one. That's your book. That's my book. That's my book, man. Fantastic. Yeah. I didn't yeah. even know about that. Yeah. So that's that's my jam. So. All right, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna find that on Amazon when we when we finish here. All right, well, cool. All right, well, 
thank you all very much for hanging with us today. And uh, as always, you know, if, if you want to please like, subscribe, share, uh, do whatever it is that you need to do to, to make sure that the, the hang grows because, um, you know, this is what it's all about, man. Two trumpet players getting together, talking a bunch of nonsense uh, and hopefully <laughs> inspiring you in some way to uh, be a better player and a better person. That's what it's all about, really. So as always, folks, peace and slide grease. We out. Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of valve oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smoothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signal. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of The Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Guru's Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group.